Uh, my voice is getting. Uh, it's not the best thing. Do you want something? Okay. Oh. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'm gonna have a cookie. If anyone wants a cookie, there's some cookies. I'm gonna have a cookie. Then. Thank you. I'll grab one after we finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you joined? Did you actually start that July? Uh, I started. Uh, let's say uh, sixty. Uh, let's see, I click yeah, 67, uh, July 67. So you started it in the long, hot summer. Yeah, it was, <laughs> a, middle, it, it was tough. Summer. We had the Detroit riots as I was arriving, actually, the day Matthew I Matthew Nimitz uh, started working at the White House in the summer of 1967, the long, hot summer, when Detroit, Newark, and dozens of other places erupted in riots for days, the summer before King was assassinated. This is part of Springfield Avenue, Newark. On the night of July 13th, 1967, hundreds of rioters smashed windows and looted these stores. Losses in the city were put at $10,251,000. The rioting cost the lives of 23 persons. Hundreds of others were injured. We are back on 12th Street in Detroit's northwestern district where it all began early Sunday morning. The state troopers, city police here on the scene of this particular fire and on the scene of numerous other ones throughout the city of Detroit for the first time, are under orders to shoot, to shoot any looters or arsonists seen running from the scene. The federalized we did a lot of work on riot preparation, riot control, what we would do with riots. This whole idea of the military being going into our cities was a unique thing and very, very difficult, very questionable. By the time Matthew started working for President Johnson, the ghettos in America had gone up for three straight years. But the uprisings in Detroit and Newark in 1967 became notorious both for their destructiveness and for how brutally police and the military cracked down on them. White Americans were perplexed. Why were the black ghettos rioting so regularly, so often? President Johnson resolved to find out. We need to know the answer, I think, to three basic questions about these riots. What happened? Why did it happen? What can be done to prevent it from happening again and again? To answer these questions, Johnson appointed a commission. They would travel to black ghettos across the country, researching, interviewing, trying to find answers. He called it the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois. Nicknamed the Kerner Commission after its chair. In order to head off another summer of riots, the commission had to work fast. By February 68, two months before King's assassination, the powder keg was already lit. State troopers fired into a crowd of black students protesting a segregated bowling alley outside South Carolina State University. See, the, the police were standing on the side of that hill and while I'm going down, the shots hit me. Three Negroes were killed and 36 others injured in a fight with police. The Orangeburg Massacre, they called it. The Kerner Commission's report was released to the public the same month. For the last few days, this country has lived under indictment, a charge of white racism, national in scale, terrible in its effects. The evidence to support that charge has now been presented more than 1,400 pages of testimony, findings, conclusions, the full text of a report released just last night. Committees in Washington don't usually do much. 
They're the kind of thing a president approves when they want to be seen as doing something. The commissioners were mostly white, mostly moderates, not radicals by any stretch. So when Otto Kerner came out saying stuff like this, Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white. It was a bit of a shock. Separate and unequal. The report found that racism was a main cause of Negro riots. The commissioners named dismal housing conditions, continued segregation in education, police brutality, and discrimination in hiring as the primary factors. Their eyes had been opened. They hoped that naming things so plainly and boldly would move the public to understand. Reaction to last summer's disorders has quickened the movement and deepened the division. Discrimination and segregation have long permeated much of American life. They now threaten the future of every American. For much of America, this was a surprising conclusion. But for the leaders of the civil rights movement, it was old news. They had been working for years to find solutions to the problem of the ghetto. In 1966, Martin Luther King joined an effort by his colleague Bayard Rustin and labor leader A. Philip Randolph to create a policy platform for the movement. Their freedom budget called for the federal government to end all poverty, black or white, by spending billions on housing, a jobs guarantee, universal health care, and a federal minimum wage. Their demands were radical, but not unique. Whitney Young of the National Urban League wanted the government to commit to a domestic Marshall Plan to rebuild Black America the way it had been rebuilding Germany after World War II. Some reporters called his proposal the Negro Marshall Plan. But if we can say to the community, this is going to take 10 years, but next year, this is what you can look for. Everybody will have a job. Everybody. And remember, I am asking you not just to hire the Phi Beta Kappas and the Lena Horns. I'm asking you also to let apply and to hire dumb Negroes like you do dumb white people and mediocre Negroes like you do mediocre white people. Now, in March 1968, the Kerner Commission joined the calls of King and Young. The federal government needed to back black America. Their recommendations were no more moderate or incremental. They echoed the Freedom Budget and the Negro Marshall Plan. The commissioners wanted six million new homes built for black folks, two million new jobs created. A guarantee of minimum income, far greater aid to schools than proposed thus far. A national commitment backed by the president, the Congress, the people with money. The commission itself did not say how much all of this would cost. The estimated cost is eight to $10 billion a year more than the administration has asked for housing, education, welfare, and job programs. Dr. Martin Luther King, who is planning a new march on Washington, has been urging that kind of spending for a long time. The commissioners tried to convince Americans, white Americans, that this was their problem to help fix. But they were fighting an uphill battle. Support of liberal, urban, and suburban white folks from the North had been vital in the civil rights movement. In the years of the riots, though, that support began to wane. A 
grandmother, fearful. She's part of what the president's report calls the polarization of the American community. Talk in the suburbs of tanks and troops and terror in the streets has led her to the pistol range. Well, if there's going to be another riot, I want to be prepared. And let me tell you one thing. He better not show his face in front of my house because if it means my own life, I'd shoot him. Fear is fear, and when you get fear into you, you'll do anything. Everyone's afraid of the uh, colored race lately. Everything seems to uh, be scared to uh, make them uh, obey the laws, which is something that uh, doesn't happen to Joe Blow like me or the guy next door. We'll get uh, thrown in jail for some of these actions. In the days after the Kerner report was released, news stations ran special reports about it. Newspapers put it on the covers. Everyone seemed to have something to say about the report. But Lyndon B. Johnson, the man who had called for the report seven months ago, hadn't said a word. It was an embarrassment, yeah. I think uh, the president's view, as I remember it, filtered through Joe Califano and others, was that there would be a ringing endorsement of his vision. That is the vision of a country uh, with more and more uh, great society social programs and more and more civil rights acts. Matthew Nimitz was a staff assistant to the president at the time. He says that Johnson didn't like the report at all. The idea that there were two societies that were moving apart challenged his legacy as a builder of the great society. I didn't see him react, but, uh, you know, the, the, the word around the place was, I'm not going to meet with these people, uh, get them out of town as soon as possible, and let's bury this report. Matthew was one of the young guys, just 29 when he came to work for the White House. But he had big responsibilities, including being one of the liaisons between Johnson and this new commission. It wasn't the first time he'd been asked to bury a report. We would often bury a report. I mean, we set up task forces, and if they were going down a path that was not sympathetic to where we wanted to go, we we would cut off their money and not help them out and, and sort of bury the report. But the Kerner report was too big to bury. A national debate swirled for weeks and weeks. Conservatives called the commissioner soft and complained that their recommendations amounted to essentially rewarding lawbreakers. Some black leaders embraced the report. Some said that it was simply stating the obvious. Johnson continued to slow walk it, ignoring the recommendations. Mostly, each side waited until unrest came again to vindicate their position. And then came the assassination. 4,000 National Guard and Federal troops are in this uneasy town tonight, and more stand ready. Fire Metropolitan Park and Capitol Police Forces are on alert. It was Johnson's nightmare brought to his front steps. His staff watched as Black D.C. burned. They brought in machine guns and troops to protect the White House, to keep the rage contained in the ghettos. The rebellion spread, though between neighborhoods and between cities. Even in cities that didn't go up on the first night, uprisings were becoming common, even accelerating. The SELC and other black leaders were pressing the White House to finally embrace the Kerner Commission's report and to champion a bill bigger and more expensive than anything they'd ever put on the table. 
in white America, calls for law and order were growing and becoming harder to ignore politically. The pressure was building. Johnson and his staff had to do something. But what was to be done? Which story, which diagnosis, which cure would the White House listen to? I'm standing here in front of a broken store window two blocks from the White House. Looters are still scuffling through the broken glass. The police are coming across the street. Here comes the teenager. It's the same, it's the same, it's the same, but I'm going to get my shit. At the end of the block, an onlooker. What do you think it's all coming to? Well, you got a man like Wallace in here, and he'll, uh, they'll have police on every corner with all to shoot to kill. That's the only thing they'll stop. Part 5. Prophecy. So when King died, the first thing is, how major do you want to make this? The night of the assassination, the White House scrambled to figure out how to respond. The riots demanded urgency, but there still wasn't much consensus among staff. Some of them still resented King for opposing the Vietnam War. They argued about how they could properly honor a man devoted to peace. The first step they settled on was to declare a national day of mourning and to order states to lower their flags to half-mast. Then they decided on a second step, bringing civil rights leaders to the White House, first thing in the morning. But even then, White House staff argued about how to do it. You invite everyone, what do you do with a meeting? I mean, is it a ceremonial meeting? Do you, you, know, you run the risk of all of them saying, now's the time to do the Marshall Plan and all the other things. We worried about that a little bit, that the meeting with uh, black leaders would get out of hand, like the Kerner Commission, in a way. As the sun rose the next morning, the Kerner Commission's warnings had been made real. In D.C., Stokely Carmichael had reemerged and prepared to give his press conference predicting the beginning of a race war. Journalists and politicians were already blaming him and H. Rap Brown for the riots. At the same time, a group of black leaders were also in the nation's capital on their way to the White House. President Johnson, with his Honolulu high-level conference held in abeyance by the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King, will meet with unspecified civil rights leaders today at the White House. The, the White House planned to meet and greet and do some photo op stuff. The idea was to show people, especially black people, that Johnson was taking things seriously and that he had a plan. The people who showed up or a who's who of black activism and politics in the 60s. Martin Luther King Sr. was too ill to make it, but he sent a message. Some others stayed back to deal with riots in their communities. But lots of big names made it. Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice. Dorothy Height of the National Council of Negro Women. Bayard Rustin, who had been one of King's close associates. The president says if Wilkins, Whitney Young, and a couple of others can make it, to go ahead. Whitney Young of the National Urban League and Roy Wilkins of the NAACP were both invited. But there weren't a whole lot of younger leaders on the list. Radical SNCC folks like Stokely Carmichael were out. Anybody affiliated with the Black Panthers or the Nation of Islam was also out. 
The exclusion of more radical leaders meant that Johnson wouldn't hear from some of the people who had the most connection to young people engaged in uprisings. But for the White House, that really didn't matter. You have a lot of meetings when you're in government that are totally non-substantive. They're ceremonial. And you know nothing's going to come out of it. It's sort of scripted. But uh, it's important to demonstrate to the world that there was a meeting, you know. A sign of respect to the black community, a sign of concern, and also hopefully to uh, calm things down. For the leaders who were present, it wasn't just ceremonial. They came in with real policy demands. Whitney Young brought back his idea for the Domestic Marshall Plan, a commitment in billions of dollars for jobs and housing for Black America. Other leaders agreed with him, even some of the more conservative ones. Johnson seemed to agree, too, at least while he was in the room. He promised funds and said that he had already set the wheels in motion with Congress. In a press conference after the meeting, Whitney Young said again that it was time for a Domestic Marshall Plan. We deliberately use that name. We, we want people to remember that if we could spend billions of dollars to rebuild West Germany, uh, a country uh, whose people set out not to destroy a few city blocks, uh, but to destroy all of America, uh, then we ought to be able to spend billions uh, in our own cities. They don't have any slums in West Germany. And what's at stake here is far more than the plight of Negroes. What's at stake here is this country becoming morally credible to young people, white and black, and to the rest of the world. Mr. Young, if you could talk through these microphones... Johnson seemed intent on getting something big done. Immediately after the meeting on Friday, he promised to convey the demands to Congress. He'd keep legislators home from Easter recess if he needed. He was forceful. The old LBJ who bulldozed congressmen and got stuff done. He was going to address Congress on the planned night of King's funeral, Monday. I have asked the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the Congress to receive me at the earliest possible moment, no later than Monday evening in the area of 9 o'clock. But behind the scenes, Matthew Nimitz and other staff knew the chances of doing something big were slim. The president still just didn't believe that the Negro Marshall Plan or the Kerner Commission recommendations were workable suggestions. And they only had three days to figure something out. For us, the big question was, what are we going to put in that speech? You know, he, he's going to give a speech. Uh, is he going to call for all these things? But if he doesn't call for all these things, like the Kerner Commission or implement these things, uh, what's the point of the speech? The big problem was the same as it always is. Money. The Vietnam War was costing as much as half of the American budget. Johnson didn't think he could force through any bills, let alone demand billions for this one. Well, if you ruled out more money, there weren't too many things that you could do. As important as they were, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were cheap. Civil rights bills, they don't cost a lot. You know, they're profoundly important, but they're not bills that you have to spend a lot of money on. Even those bills had faced extreme opposition in Congress when protesters were peaceful, nonviolent. Now, there were riots going on. Congress is a pretty good test of how people are feeling generally, right? And certainly, you ask people to spend money on social programs, uh, for jobs and housing, and then they see 
everything being burnt down. So there was anger and resentment and certainly not an atmosphere for pouring more money in. Johnson backed himself into something of a corner by announcing the speech and by making promises to the civil rights leaders. He'd hoped that the meeting would calm the riots down. Going back on his promises might make the situation worse. But then the King family announced that the funeral would be Tuesday instead of Monday. In view of the Tuesday funeral for Dr. King, the president's appearance before Congress would be postponed. The president has urged Speaker John McCormick to work for quick passage of a civil rights bill. That plea still stands. In his diary from that day, Matthew Nimitz wrote that the president had caught a break. Anyway, the speech was postponed. I was glad that I couldn't see this as being anything but another exhortation to an unsympathetic Congress and a troubled nation without many solutions. After two days in the pressure cooker, President Johnson could relax. He didn't immediately have to follow through on his promises he made to the civil rights leaders. He didn't have to go out and try to force Congress to pass a law he didn't even really want. If he waited it out and the streets calmed down, maybe they wouldn't even need to get a big bill done. Matthew Nimitz and his colleagues watched the news reports in D.C., Chicago, Newark hoping that the riots would fizzle out. But then, another city went up. From a distance, Baltimore, like most cities, seems to be divided most visibly and dramatically into works of nature and works of man. Yet this division between man and nature is not the most dramatic distinction that exists in the metropolitan area. The sharpest cleavage is at ground level, on man-made streets and in his buildings, where artificial but rock-solid boundaries separate blocks and homes into white, negro, and transitional neighborhoods. On the bottom rung of this economic and social ladder is the Negro Ghetto, which President Johnson called an indictment to our cities north and south, a denial of justice. So, uh, Dr. Burke, can you just first introduce yourself? What's your name and where are you from? Okay, my name is Robert Burt. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, the son of immigrants from North Carolina. You know, they came with the great black migration, as it was called in the 1940s. Well, I'm, I'm a Carolinian, so I'm always interested in this. Ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, where are they from? Mother was from Washington, North Carolina. and Little Washington, yeah, yes. Little Washington. Robert Burt is a philosophy professor at Bowie State University. He grew up in East Baltimore. When he was born, Robert's family lived in the slums. He still remembers how bad the conditions were. There were splinters and there were um, vermin floating around. One of my earliest memories is seeing my mother with a broom chasing a rat away from my baby sister's crib. His family had its ups and downs. There weren't a whole lot of ways to get ahead in Black Baltimore back then, so Robert's dad liked to play the numbers. There was a brief period in which 
we were actually experiencing a kind of upper mobility, and I think he hit the number or something like that for $1,000, which in 59 or 6 was a substantial amount of money that wouldn't make you rich. And he opened up a store. And when he did, we actually bought a house, if I remember correctly, it was at 1209 Dolly Avenue. And we had a backyard, we had a dog named Sandy. They stayed there for two years. Robert's dad ran the store, and they lived okay. But that didn't last. There was a problem with the police. Police would come by the store demanding their cut. Baltimore police were known by black citizens and local media to be corrupt. They were considered inept, too, except when it came to brutality and cheating people out of their money. It was exactly the kind of thing the Kerner Commission had been warning about. And Robert Burt saw it up close. I was in the store once. I heard this big, fat, white policeman coming in, and he went around boasting about how many black people he killed. In those days, they were pretty upfront and in your face with their racism and just outright calling my father a nigger. You better get me my money. And let me know. It was just unbelievable. Yeah. I don't know if my sister remember, but I definitely do. We were there. They threatened to kill my father. Soon after that, his father's business folded. Robert doesn't know exactly how, but he does know that they bounced back to the slums and then over to the Latrobe Public Housing Projects in East Baltimore. Back when Baltimore was segregated by law, Latrobe had been an all-white project. But by the time Robert got there, all the white folks had fled for the suburbs. Baltimore went from being 19% black in 1940 to almost half black in 1968. Robert recalls that white people who were left in the city guarded their neighborhoods, their property, from black intruders like their lives depended on it. I was out for a group of people, I guess it was in 66, 67, the year Martin Luther King had visited Baltimore. Uh, we had gone out skating, and we had girls with us, very teenage boys. We would just wander around and acting the way kids act, you know, silly and all that. And we wandered somehow or another into some part of a white area. We started noticing, you know, I think we took a wrong turn somewhere. <laughs> now, Robert has seen a lot. He tells every story so casually and low-key that sometimes these terrifying details just kind of walk right past you. But sometimes he laughs. And then you know, it's about to get real. <laughs> and before we knew it, there was a crowd of uh, white youths who were shouting and screaming racial slurs, I mean, calling us, you know, the N-word, you know. They were acting like monkeys, actually. <laughs> Some of them threw some things at us, but fortunately we were at such a distance that nothing could connect. We did know we weren't far away from home, so we just headed on out of there. The group had to decide what to do to protect themselves. One person said, well, look, if it gets too heavy, we were going to ask the girls to run, and we were going to see if we couldn't delay the crowd by throwing a couple of bricks or something to slow them down. We probably couldn't have succeeded at that. There were too many of them. <laughs> We wisely decided to keep on walking. And fortunately, we weren't far from a, a black area. 
but somebody said that uh, if they cross over this territory, they are, they, we own them. Robert Burt never needed the Kerner Commission report. Every single day, he lived all the conclusions that had so shocked the commissioners. He saw a black Baltimore that felt like it was primed to explode. But two days after King's assassination, with uprisings happening all over the country, things were still quiet. Maryland's governor, Spiro Agnew, praised his citizens for not rioting. He even used some of the Kerner Commission's rhetoric. He talked of charting a new course for black Baltimore. I consider it especially important in view of Maryland's peaceful reaction to the current national crisis to move quickly to consolidate gains that already have been made in the civil rights field and to chart a positive course for the future. Accordingly, I am asking prominent leaders of the Negro community in Baltimore and elsewhere in the state to meet with me next Thursday at 1.30 p.m. for a frank and far-reaching discussion of the problems that have faced this state and this nation. Robert says that the calmness on the first few days was a mirage. There was like two days of sorrow and suppressed anger and mourning. And then on Saturday, I guess you could say the grieving began to give way to anger. That afternoon, there were a few memorial services in the city for King. Crowds of people started gathering right by the projects where Robert lived. Robert was there. They were cursing, they were saying these white so-and-sos, they murdered King, we're going to kill them, we're going to burn them out, and so forth and so on. And some people in the crowd even clapped and cheered them. First, the crowd started smashing windows around the block. Then they moved to local businesses, throwing rocks and setting fires at dry cleaners and furniture stores. It was just like what happened in D.C. two days earlier. Black Baltimore exploded. Tell me what it looked like. It was a crowd of people. They were angry, uh, as I was. Some of them did the deeds. I mean, they destroyed things. They tore up white property. We're not supposed to burn it down. Yeah. We don't burn down soul people. But some dummy, some dummy, some dummy starts to fall right beside our soul brother barbershop. And we didn't mean to do that. We want to take it. But uh, this is just the beginning. This is going to go on all summer. The situation escalated quickly from there. Baltimore mobilized most of its police force as multiple buildings were firebombed. The first of over a thousand buildings where fires were reported. Spiro Agnew declared an 11 p.m. curfew. But in just a matter of hours, fires were burning all throughout black neighborhoods in East Baltimore. They continued through the next day. We have taken the following steps to restore law and order in our state. He declared a state of emergency, called in the Maryland National Guard, and sent a telegram to the White House asking for federal troops. Attorney General Ramsey Clark agreed to immediately dispatch the troops. They should now be taking positions in the critical areas. Thousands of soldiers marched through the streets to arrest hundreds of people for breaking curfew. 
by the next morning, at least three people were dead, either from the fires or from the confrontations. Robert Burt stayed out there and watched, but he says he didn't participate. Some people started a rumor that Robert Burt was throwing Molotov cocktails. I did not throw any cocktails. <laughs> but I had no negative attitude about those who did. <laughs> okay. So, 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 so neutrality regarding the uh, Molotov cocktails. Um, well, I did clap a little. <laughs> the Baltimore uprising began a new phase in the national reckoning, one where white fears about the riots really came into play. Agnew wanted his troops to be efficient and none too gentle in cracking down. He wasn't the only white leader who used his playbook. In Chicago, Mayor Richard J. Daley also came down hard and complained about not being able to order his police to shoot to kill. In my opinion, he should have had instructions to shoot arsonists and to shoot looters. Shoot arsonists to kill and shoot looters in order that they be detained when this was being conducted. In D.C., the riots had been contained and suppressed by the presence of federal troops and lots of tear gas. The White House had decided to send in mostly integrated units, like the 82nd Airborne, in order to try and build trust with black communities. And Mayor Walter Washington helped coordinate a police response that he hoped would result in minimal loss of life. But when the disturbances threatened to move into D.C.'s mostly white suburbs, the response changed. A strong show of force by police and military units is credited for a significant decrease in violence in Washington and suburban areas. Authorities set up checkpoints along strategic highways. The visible presence of the heavily armed police and soldiers is believed to have caused the sharp drop in trouble. But before in at least one case... Black people on the street were told in clear terms that they would be shot if they crossed over the border to Maryland. In other cities, they cordoned off white neighborhoods and downtown areas. Matthew Nimitz kept tabs on it all from the White House. He felt like he saw the window for change closing. Those were pretty profound events in those cities, but also profound politically, because it changed the mood in the Congress and I think in the country. When you have riots, even though it's understandable, people react negatively. The combination of, of the assassination and the riots sort of put an end to uh, a lot of new thinking. By the morning of April 7th, Palm Sunday, it was clear that the Kerner Commission's report was not going to be endorsed and implemented. Lots of white people didn't agree with the report before the riots the dream of spending billions to transform black life in America probably died in the fires. But the White House reached for one more option to try to get something done. Is it another stalemate or will they get something? The reliability and viability of the Congress is at stake. Can the Congress respond to this report? The response I would judge would be open housing, which costs no money but very little in the nature of the kind of drastic immediate action the report talks about. Very little. There was a fair housing bill that had been stuck in Congress for a while. It wasn't exactly the Negro Marshall Plan. It wasn't even close. 
But housing had been envisioned as a third part of a trifecta with the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act. The Fair Housing Bill would outlaw discrimination in many home sales to black residents. The bill had been stalled by opposition from segregationists and white suburbanites, but the White House thought that now there might be the perfect storm in which to get it passed. The thing is, it was there, right? Uh, We're not talking about subsidies here. We're not talking about a lot of handouts. We're not talking about welfare mothers, all that type of stuff that that arouses, you know, the conservatives. And I think because of the assassination, enough members of Congress were ready to do something. And this thing was languishing up there. (laughs) And uh, it just needed a little push to get it out. But with backlash to the riots growing, even that bill, with no money attached, could face new opposition. In the first moments and days after King's assassination, the messages had been overwhelmingly in support of getting something major done. White politicians were taking the Kerner Commission report seriously. They were promising ambitious programs to support Black people and keep King's dream alive. Now, uprisings were triggering an uglier, more visceral response among white America. To pursue our present course will involve the continuing polarization of the American community and ultimately the destruction of basic democratic values. The alternative will require a commitment to national action, compassionate, massive, and sustained backed by the resources of the most powerful and richest nation on the earth. From every American, it will require new attitudes, new understanding, and above all, new will. The struggle between black rage and white backlash that unfolded in the days ahead would define the next era in the history of the country. Kerner Commission had hoped that the White House could use the moment to finally bring the two Americas together. But maybe the most likely path was the one they feared. Perhaps Black America would be abandoned forever. 